Well, it is a joy to see you all today. I know you've been doing it all morning, but he is risen. I hope that it will be a special Easter for you, for your family, however it is that you'll be marking that today. It is simply the fact, whoop, sorry, Austin, you don't want to knock over the fiddler, not after that, man. (laughs) There is no day on the calendar year in which we celebrate something as important as this day. Nothing else compares. Uh, This day takes the cake handily against something like the 4th of July of Thanksgiving, but even against holidays like Christmas. Nothing compares to the significance of Easter, but it is increasingly clear that not everybody understands why Easter is such a big deal. I recently read a piece that was purporting to give the true history of Easter, and tellingly, the first line of the article was this, Easter is weird. And what followed was what is becoming an all-too-familiar story about how those pesky Christians stole the Passover date from the Jews, and they stole the spring equinox celebration from the Europeans and the Chinese, and they stole all the customs and traditions from pagans in general. Although, footnote, even this skeptical article had to acknowledge that after they did their research, the name Easter is thoroughly Christian. It doesn't come from a pagan source, so if you've heard that, not true. Ours. Thank you very much. (laughs) But with the typical snark to which we have been accustomed, the article opines this. Like an ancient version of the Borg, the early Christian invaders incorporated and claimed the parts of, of pagan cultures they could live with, like eggs on a spring holiday, while discarding the parts they couldn't, like gender equality. (laughs) Not written by a historian, apparently. After speculating about the appropriate gender pronouns to use for the Easter Bunny, I'm not joking, uh, the article closes by wondering if social guilt is the main reason that people still celebrate this weird holiday called Easter. It's an interesting take, isn't it? And I found at least one point of agreement. Easter is weird. And it's far weirder, by which I mean strange and unexpected, than a paint-by-secular-numbers article like this could have ever imagined. Why do we celebrate Easter? Well, strangely enough, it is something that has to do with guilt. But not a guilt that remains, but a guilt that was annihilated. A guilt that was satisfied. Today, we gather with one purpose, not to celebrate stealing all of the pagan cultures from around Europe and China. But we gather to celebrate to remember the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's what today is all about. So enjoy this day. Enjoy it heartily. Celebrate with gladness. This is a time for feasting and celebration because nothing can ever again challenge or change the fact that He is risen. He is risen indeed. And I want this morning for us to remember just how weird and wonderful Easter really is. And I also want us to remember that despite the unfathomable benefits of Easter for us, and we will talk about those, Easter is the celebration of something that is ultimately not about us, but about him. Easter is about good news. 
And that good news is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we're going to see now, the gospel is to be at the very center of every single part of our lives on this day and on every day. And so if you're taking notes this morning, our first point is the gospel at the center of our lives. If you've been uh, here regularly in our fellowship, you know we've been working our way through the book of 1 Corinthians. I know today it's likely we have many who are visiting with us for the first time. I want to also greet those in room 130 and who are watching online. And we're thankful that you can join us in fellowship with us. Uh, we've been moving verse by verse through the book of 1 Corinthians, and we're actually going to spend almost the entirety of our morning in this book as we study Easter. And it might at first seem odd that we would look at Easter by studying a book that is primarily about dealing with sin. But then if you think about it, well, that's what Easter is all about, isn't it? Dealing with sin. And perhaps it should be no surprise then that 1 Corinthians is a book in which every chapter is printed on gospel pages and which says more about the resurrection of Jesus than any book in the New Testament outside of the gospels themselves. And so I want to start our journey this morning with the simple message of good news, which forms the heart of the gospel. I know you know this well, but let's remember, what is this good news that we celebrate? And then we'll work our way from this heart of the gospel out to its implications in every aspect of our lives. And so if you have your Bibles and you want to follow along, you can turn to 1 Corinthians 15. We'll be spending most of our morning there, which you probably already knew, because how could you not spend most of your morning in 1 Corinthians 15 on a day like today? We're going to jump around in a bit, and I'll warn you ahead of time. But 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4 says this, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised again on the third day according to the scriptures. The heart of the gospel, the essence of the good news that we proclaim in Jesus Christ, is a very simple message. In fact, Paul boils it down here to its most basic truths. There is a person, a payment, and a proof. That's the essence of the gospel. That person is the Christ. We come to celebrate not the general idea of salvation, but that God sent himself as a man named Jesus. That he actually came and walked on this planet and was among us. And that person named Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Christ, died. And that's the payment. That's the payment. Jesus died. But notice not just a symbolic death. He didn't die simply to be a moral example of sacrifice. He didn't die as a, a tragic martyrdom to end the life of a good moral teacher. Jesus died for one reason, for sins. His death was meant to be the payment that we had incurred for our sins. And the proof that that payment was sufficient is found at the end when Paul says he didn't stay dead. He rose again on the third day from the dead. That's the message of the gospel. That's the message of the gospel. If we add or subtract from that message, we have no longer connected ourselves to the gospel message. It's something else. 
that we're talking about. And it's a message that's been understood and believed upon by the very young, by the very old, and everybody in between in the Middle East, here in America, and everywhere in between that the gospel has been proclaimed. When by the grace of God we are given an understanding of our sinfulness and the faith to believe that the death of Jesus is the only acceptable payment for that sinfulness and that his resurrection demonstrates the divine approval of that payment, we are saved. That's the good news of the gospel. But that good news, as simple of a message as it is, expands to touch every single part of our lives. It is an all-encompassing reality because the gospel is not just a doorway you walk through to enter Christian land. It's not just a passport of initiation to get you through. The gospel establishes the very reality that we are to live in each and every day. And so public service announcement, if you're the copious note-taking type, it's going to be rough here for a few minutes. You can uh, catch up later online and pause the video if you want. Because when we talk about living a gospel-centered life, we are talking about so much more than just looking forward to heaven. We're not talking about less than that, but we're talking about so much more than that. And so I want to dash through here at the beginning of our time this morning through a number of passages in 1 Corinthians in which Paul helps us to appreciate how all of our lives are directly shaped by the good news that Jesus died for sins and rose again. And you don't have to look very far in the book to get started. You go right back to the first chapter. Paul introduces himself, and then in verse 3 immediately says this, Grace to you. The gospel of Jesus Christ gives us favor with God where we once had condemnation. And peace, he says next. We have peace with God where once we were counted his enemies. From God our Father, Paul says, we have been adopted into the family of God where once we were rebels and strangers. And the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been brought under the lordship of King Jesus, where once we were slaves to sin. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God which was given you in Christ Jesus, that in everything you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony concerning Christ was confirmed in you so that you are not lacking in any gift. We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places where we were once absolutely impoverished and dead in our trespasses and sins. Paul continues, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. We've been given unspeakable and unshakable hope of being made blameless and holy for the day where once we who were without hope in the impotence of our own strength can expect to stand with our Savior in glory. And so Paul concludes this section in verse 9 by saying, God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ. We've been granted an identity and called into a fellowship, a place where we belong and in which we are kept by God himself, where once we had been shut out as those rightly considered unworthy. And the proclamation of that finished work of Jesus in his perfect righteousness, in his substitutionary death on a cross, his vindicating resurrection, that's what Paul simply calls the word of the cross. And he admits openly in chapter 1, verses 18 and following, that this will sound like absolute foolishness to the world. But to those who are being saved, it is the wisdom of God and it is the power of God 
unto salvation. This is the message, Paul says, that was a mystery planned from the very beginning of time in 1 Corinthians 2, 6. And once this mystery has arrived, it has become the single foundation upon which everything else must be built, 1 Corinthians 3:11, which brings us to chapter 3, verse 21, where Paul says this, So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all things belong to you and you belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God. So what is being built on this foundation? Everything. Everything is built on this foundation of what we have in Christ through the gospel. It secures for us the blessings in the church, yes, but those blessings expand to include the world, life, death, things present, things to come. Indeed, as Paul says, all things. And we belong to Christ and Christ belongs to God and all because of the gospel. Chapter 4, verse 20 goes on to tell us that this gospel is so much more than just a bunch of good ideas that help to make the world a better place. It isn't a collection of inspiring words. The gospel is communicated in words. But what does the gospel consist of? What is it made of? Nothing less than divine power. In chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, Paul goes on to tell us that that power is seen in our lives as the gospel transforms us into the image of Christ. I saw a post this week by somebody online that was picturing Christ and all these individuals coming from all walks and backgrounds of life, many of which broken and sinful. And the point of the post was that Jesus accepts all of you and is happy to let you remain as you are. That's tragic. That denies what the power of the gospel working in our lives is meant to accomplish. We all have a past without Christ. There was a time when every one of us did not know Jesus. And as you can see on the screen, for some of us, that past included being fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, swindlers, and more. But the gospel of Jesus Christ, through the power of his indwelling Holy Spirit, has washed us. And though we still struggle against the sinful desires of our flesh, we are no longer identified by those sins that used to be our identity. We have been justified, declared righteous. We have been sanctified, he says, considered holy by God in Christ. And we are becoming holy in practice through obedience. Which brings us to verse 20. To live free of sin is a privilege and also an obligation. To come to God through Christ is to recognize that a great price has been paid for our redemption. Indeed, the very price of the blood of God's Son. And having been bought with such a price, we have a responsibility to glorify God in all that we do. In 1 Corinthians 9.12, Paul then says, For the sake of the gospel, I will endure any suffering. In 1 Corinthians 9.19-22, he goes on to say, There is no right so dear, there is no privilege so precious, that we should not lay it down for the sake of the gospel. There's nothing in this world for us to hold on to if it gets in the way of us taking good news 
and letting it be seen and known in the world. Indeed, as Paul would summarize in 1 Corinthians 9.23, and I hope this could be true for all of us, I do all things for the sake of the gospel. There is absolutely nothing in life that should not be connected directly to making the gospel widely seen, widely known, and so that we might fully experience and partake of it ourselves. And that's what it means when we speak of having a gospel-centered life. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about what it means to be a Christian. We who have received the grace of God through Christ are identified by that good news, shaped by that good news, motivated by that good news, directed by that good news, strengthened by that good news. We live for it, we die for it, and we will rise again because of it. And that last part's important. Indeed, the gospel can be summarized as the word of the cross. For Paul, however, that message of the cross was woefully incomplete, indeed absolute foolishness, apart from the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus. And so if you're taking notes this morning, the gospel indeed is to be at the center of every single part of our lives. The good news by which we have a right relationship with God and the good news by which we stand and live every single day. But the resurrection is at the center of the gospel. The resurrection is at the center of the gospel. And if you want to turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, we will camp there for the the majority of the rest of this morning so you can uh, breathe a sigh of relief. Follow along as I read verses 12 to 19 from 1 Corinthians 15. Now, if Christ is preached, you know these words well, that he has been raised from the dead. How do you, some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. Your faith also is vain. Moreover, we are even found to be false witnesses of God because we testified against God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. I think today the resurrection is perhaps the most neglected part of our gospel witness. I think when we speak of our faith, when we share with others the good news of of the gospel, we speak often and we speak well of the cross and the incredible price that Jesus paid when he died for his sins. But I think at least in my experience, and, and I think it is true more broadly, we often forget the empty tomb. We often forget to speak of the resurrection of Christ. Did you notice in chapter 15, we began with it this morning when we looked at the simple message of the gospel, it took Paul less than a verse to proclaim the entirety of the gospel message up to the resurrection. Christ died for sins, according to the scriptures, and he was buried. One verse. Paul then goes on to spend 56 verses talking about the resurrection. There's a priority here when it comes to our understanding of the reality and the truthfulness of the message of Jesus Christ. Simply put, there is no such thing as good news without the resurrection. The resurrection is what makes the good news the good news. 
Verse 12, as we just saw, without the resurrection, you don't have a Christian gospel. Paul says, if this was the message we preached and you don't believe it, then what are we talking about? The faith that we delivered to you is the, the message of a resurrected Savior. If you're saying, I'll buy the death of Jesus Christ, I just don't believe in resurrection, Paul says, you're not a Christian. That's not the gospel we preached to you. Without the resurrection, you don't have a valuable gospel, Paul says in verses 13 to 14. What's the point of proclaiming a message about a man who said stuff and died and stayed that way? That puts him on the same level of every other man who said stuff and died and stayed that way. Without the resurrection, our gospel has no value. Without the resurrection, we have a dishonest gospel. We've lied about God and his own revelation. That's not a safe thing to do. Verses 16 to 18, without the resurrection, you have a hopeless gospel. This ties back with it being worthless, it being in vain. But Paul underscores this by saying, don't you realize if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the sacrifice didn't count. And if the sacrifice didn't count, we're all still going to hell. We are still in our sins. Without the resurrection, our gospel has no good news, no hope. Which means, verse 19, without the resurrection, you have a pitiable gospel. It's just sad. And when we look at how the world views the gospel of Jesus Christ, we kind of see this, don't we? They, they sort of teeter back and forth between just being really frustrated at this narrow-minded bigotry that we're trying to force on other people, or just sort of like, you guys are cute, but just so pathetically misled just feel really bad for you. Have you noticed that? And here's the thing. Without the resurrection, they're right. Apart from the resurrection, they're right. We're arrogant and we're pathetic. But if the resurrection is true, then that changes everything. Consider that with the exception of the Apostle John, every single one of the original apostles on the night that Christ was betrayed ran and hid and spent the next days terrified of the Romans. And then for some reason, every single one of them, but the Apostle John, who was the only one who would die of natural causes in old age, every single other one came running back and would not stop talking about Jesus until every single one of them was killed for that testimony. Why? Not because they'd heard that Jesus died, but because they saw that he had risen. And consider all the thousands of people who believed in Jesus in Jerusalem during Pentecost and during the time around that, all around the area of Jerusalem and in spreading out from there, all those people who knew firsthand that there was this man, Jesus, who had been executed on a cross, and they placed their faith in Jesus anyway and brought upon themselves the severe persecution that faith incurred why would they do that because they knew the tomb was empty the resurrection and only the resurrection is a sign significant enough to confirm a message as bold and all-encompassing as the word of the cross if jesus didn't rise from the dead then add his teaching to the moral ramblings of every other man who's ever lived and taught it's all one and the same to follow Jesus exclusively, to suffer for him, to trade all the charms of this world, just to know him. It's just sad, according to Paul. 
But if Jesus did rise, then he and his message are the only thing that matters. The only thing that matters. Death has met its match. An objective truth has been established and confirmed once and for all. And it's at this point that Paul then begins to pivot and remind us that the gospel, as wonderfully blessed as it is to us in all that it grants us and gives us, is about so much more than us. And indeed, we are quite secondary to the point of the gospel. We're quite secondary to the point of the resurrection. And so today, as we celebrate Easter, I want us to celebrate Easter and all of its benefits for us this day. But we also should celebrate in the humility of recognizing the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about something so much more than me and my good. At the center of the gospel is the resurrection. At the center of the resurrection is actually not me, because this is a story that has God in it, which means that the center of the resurrection is God. And in this case, at the center of the resurrection is a king who must reign. So we've looked at how the gospel is at the center of all of our lives. We've looked at how the resurrection is central to the gospel. And thirdly, this morning in your notes, the king at the center of the resurrection will be the subject of our study in the rest of 1 Corinthians 15. Begin with me in verse 20. But now, right? There's a lot of things that hinge with that word in the Bible. This would be really, really bad. But there's good news. Without the resurrection, this whole thing is lost. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, after that, those who are Christ's at his coming. Then comes the end, that Greek word telos, the physical end, but also the purpose, the reason. This is the goal. When he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. Why did Jesus rise from the dead? That's why he did it. And here you have the story of human history, the real story of human history. If you've looked around, you've noticed there's a lot of competing narratives in the world today trying to establish the basic framework to understand the unfolding arc of history. The story of human history is, in fact, not the story of materialistic class conflict. Whether that class conflict is economic, like Karl Marx thought, or whether that class conflict is based on identities, as in our present time, that is not the engine driving human history. The story of human history is not the story of slow, violent, evolutionary determinism. What explains the flow of human history is not a bunch of genes burbling their way towards some inevitable utopia. The story of human history is not the story of technological transcendence where we, with our ingenuity and creativity, will, by our technology, continue to solve every problem we encounter until there are no problems left to solve. The story of human history is this. It's the tale of two atoms. Not atoms, but atoms. The tale of two atoms. It begins with a world created to be cared for and a man 
created to be responsible and care for it. A man named Adam, given dominion and stewardship of this world. And as we know only too well, that man failed. And he failed catastrophically, rebelling against the God who had created him, disobeying him. And his sin not only brought about a curse upon him, but it cursed him and his entire dominion. That is what we refer to as the fall. How many of you are tired of living in a world that's cursed? How many of you are tired of being somebody under the effects of the curse? And history is the tale of contender after contender after contender trying to challenge the curse, trying to succeed where Adam failed, and they likewise fail. Every single one. Whether it's an Abraham, whether it's a David, whether it's a Solomon, whether it's an Alexander the Great, every single contender to reclaim what was lost by Adam has proven that they too are as flawed as he. Every single one of us as well, until Jesus Until Jesus, when it was clear that the line of the first Adam, the first Adam would not and could not redeem itself, God sent himself as a man, a second Adam, to take up the mantle of the first Adam and face the curse. The first Adam fell into death. The second Adam rose from the dead. And that's the story of history. That's what it's about. The triumph of Christ in the face of the failure of Adam. But to what purpose? But to what purpose? Why all of this? What is the end? What is the telos of this resurrection story? Well, look again at verse 24. The purpose is not our comfort. The purpose is not our happiness. The purpose is the complete consolidation of all power, glory, and rulership into the hands of Jesus so that he may then present a kingdom of righteousness to his father. That's the purpose of all this. It's a story with God in it, like I said, and therefore it's a story about God and must be about God. And so Paul goes on to explain not just the effects of the resurrection in that we who are now in the second Adam through faith and the good news of Jesus Christ are part of his family. The purpose of the resurrection, Paul goes on to explain in verses 25 to 28. Look with me there. For he must reign. And there's the title of our message this morning. He must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. On Good Friday, we came to remember when the last enemy was defeated. When the crushing blow was struck. But if you haven't noticed, death is not yet abolished. But it will be. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is evident that he is accepted who put all things in subjection to him. What are you doing, Paul? Just a nerdy way of saying, of course, when the Father subjects all things to the Son, he doesn't include himself, so God the Father is not subjected to the Son. That's all. When all things are subjected to him, 
Then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. You see the point? The point of history is he must reign. Why? Because he has to take everything that the Father has given to him, which is everything, and subject it all to himself. And having done that as the eternally obedient son, he will then take that subjected kingdom and he will offer it to his father. And so the son will be all victorious and the father will be all glorious. That's the purpose. That's what this whole thing is about. The reason Jesus rose from the dead is because he must reign. Because he must reign. That's the plan and purpose of God. We're direct beneficiaries, but we're not the point. The reign of Jesus has always been the real good news behind the good news of the gospel by which we are saved. And you can see that going back 700 years before Jesus was even born. To the land of Israel in a time when nations are on the rise, sweeping across the land and crushing other powers when the nation of Israel itself is collapsing under the weight of its own abandonment of Yahweh and when the prophets were called to speak and tell Israel of their impending judgment at the hands of a righteous God and that task fell among others to Isaiah who writes to this rebellious hard-hearted fearful nation rotting within threatened without and under the imminent judgment of God. But to these prophets, God not only gave the message of judgment coming because of their covenantal disobedience, but he also gave them good news to speak. That despite the judgment you are facing for your disobedience, I, for my own name's sake, will send a Savior who will do for you what you cannot and will not do for yourselves. And so for that reason, you will be judged but not destroyed. And we read about some of this good news in Isaiah chapter 52, verse 7. Familiar words, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. Right? That's what the word gospel means, good news who announces peace and brings good news of happiness, who announces salvation and says to Zion, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Yeah, I'm seeing a few heads going, not in my Bible. That's wrong. What is the good news for the beleaguered people of Israel? Three words. Your God reigns. That's the good news. That's why two verses later Isaiah can write, Break forth, shout joyfully together, you waste places of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has bared his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, that all the ends of the earth may see the salvation of our God. This is the good news of the good news. Notice it's not your God will reign. Hang in there someday. But that right now, your God reigns. That's why the good news is good news. 
Because history is not determined by what we invent. History is not determined by the power of oppressors. History is not determined by anything except for the one who reigns over history. And who is that? Your God. He reigns. And we can pick up this good news and carry it further. Our God reigns, and then to use language of Paul, and he must reign until his holy arm has cleared the world of all challengers, and he reigns alone. That's the hope of Easter. And that hopefully is the hope of every believer here today. That we gather because our God reigns and he must reign. And that's why he came. And that's why he died. And that's why he rose again. And that's why he's coming back. And that's why all the brokenness I see around me and all the brokenness I see in me is what's passing away and what is coming into focus is the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. And that's why Paul can then continue in 1 Corinthians 15 to speak of that day and say this. In that day, verse 54, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, Then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I've read some fascinating things in history that foolish leaders have tried. One of my favorites, you probably know the king who ordered that the sea be whipped for daring to sink some of his boats. I love that story. Can you just imagine being like the guy assigned to do that? Like, like hard? How will I know when I should stop? It's not crying yet. Kings have dared some pretty ridiculous things, but very few, even among the great rulers of this world, have ever dared taunt and mock death. Because death comes for us all. And even the great know they're mortal. We serve the God who reigns and who must reign. And not only does he command the sea, and it obeys the first time, but he taunts death. And he invites us to taunt death in him because death is a defeated foe. If you have come today and perhaps you've been even around the church or perhaps all this is new, I want to invite you. If you have never understood what it means to be submitted to the God who reigns, to do that today, to recognize that the problem in our lives that needs to be solved is not our circumstances, it's not our feelings, it's not our surroundings. The problem in our lives that needs to be solved is the fact that as we only know too well, we are sinners against the perfect holiness of a God who created us in his image. And that that God has orchestrated history in such a way that for his glory, 
All things will be subjected to Jesus Christ. And that can be either through judgment or that can be through forgiveness. That when he came and died on the cross, he has made a payment sufficient for all our sin. And we have but to accept it and receive it to say, Father God, would you forgive my sin against you? No longer by me trying to somehow earn it and accomplish it, but by simply saying, you already did it and I trust it. And that can seem way too good to be true. How can something so good be so free? But think about it. It has to be free or it can't exist. What part, even if God said, hey, I really wish you could get some skin in the game. I really wish you could contribute a little bit to this uh, salvation plan I'm putting together. What part could sinful people like we actually contribute? What perfect, unsin-stained part of us could offer any merit, anything truly good for God to sort of mix in with other good things? Nothing. And so salvation has to be a gift freely received and freely given or salvation cannot happen at all. And it really is that simple. And if you have never said, Father, forgive me, I am a sinner. Thank you for sending a substitute to accomplish fully the penalty for my sin. Would you receive me in him? Because I want to follow Christ as my king, for he must reign. And I wish to reign with him then would you do that today? Do that today. But I hope we understand that this is not just a message for those who don't know Christ. You would think after Paul spends 56 verses explaining the resurrection and all of its implications, he would get to the punchline and it would be, so all you sinners at Corinth who clearly aren't saved need to get your acts together and repent. But notice that the application point for Paul of 56 verses of focusing on the resurrection, the application is for believers. Look at verse 58. Paul's conclusion. Therefore, my beloved brethren, he's speaking to fellow believers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. That's the application of the resurrection. Don't give up. Don't move. Don't stop walking in obedience because it won't be in vain. You might be thinking, God has not looked at my life recently. I'm doing everything I can and it's all vain. I don't see anything getting accomplished. Time out. Who said your work has to be the good thing that gets accomplished? If your toil is in the Lord, it's his work that makes it not in vain, not yours. Like, that's good news. What does God expect for you? To fix everything. No, to be faithful, to be steadfast, to be immovable, to make your life a consistent testimony of belief and trust in the God who must reign. And it will be his finished work that makes it all worthwhile. And so I hope Valley Bible Church, we will take great encouragement from that. 
in a world where things are constantly changing, in a world where the church in our area may lose a lot of its prominence, a lot of its protections, a lot of its respect, where it may seem like everything is being lost. No, it's not. Your God reigns, and he must reign until he puts America under his feet and everywhere else. And your toil in the Lord is not in vain. And that brings us to our time around the Lord's table this morning. And for this, I invite you to turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. I'm thankful the Lord has instituted the Lord's table and given us such tangible elements to remember it by because it is so easy to speak of the glory of God and the greatness of salvation and to mythologize the story and forget that to accomplish these great and glorious things, Jesus really came as a man, and he really died, and his body was really broken, and his blood was really spilt. But I hope you notice there at the end what our remembrance is marked by. There's a timeline to it. Around the world there are memorials and remembrances of people who have died. But you know what is missing from all of those? the until-they-come-back clause. You don't gather at the memorials of the dead and they say, here's where we remember this great person who died until they come back. We remember the death of Jesus until what? He returns. Why is he returning? Because he must reign. And when he does, we will reign with him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for the kindness you have bestowed on us in your Son. We know you must do all things for your glory, otherwise it would be wrong. And therefore, you must reign. And indeed you do, and are even now in the process of subjecting all things to your Son, Jesus Christ. And how thankful we are that this plan of yours includes grace to be given to sinners such as we, that you offer us a full pardon, a complete redemption, a finished justification by faith in what your Son has done for us. And I pray this Easter we would be those who declare to this world our God reigns and he must reign and therefore he is not dead, he is alive. And we would proclaim that message not just this day, but every day until he comes back for us. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take together. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. And God's people said... Amen. He is risen. He is risen if you believe it, then stand and sing hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs>